I love nature. It probably started as a kid. My grandparents retired at Laguna Beach. Their trailer was right on the cliff, the deck of their trailer. We sat on it for hours in the summers that we spent there, staring at the ocean and watching the surf and listening to the waves and just soaking in that beauty. My family also used, used to go camping. And in particular, my dad and I, from the summer of my fifth grade until well into my college years, every summer my dad and I spent the better part of a week um, hiking somewhere in the Sierras, up and down the east and western side of the Sierras. And there were several places that we, we returned to on multiple occasions, but we didn't go anywhere more than we went to Yosemite National Park. And any time we were at Yosemite National Park, we made sure we always ended up in the valley. I love it there. I never tire of the beauty of the valley. In fact, to this day, my family, most often you will find us there at least once a year. It's an incredible beauty if you haven't seen it before. I love taking people there for the first time to see the awe on their face as they just gaze around at the beauty that is around them. You can almost tell first-timers as you're walking through the valley. It's something you can see in their faces. But likewise, you can also almost tell people who have been there so much and it doesn't appeal to them or whatever. It's been there, done that, and they're texting and they're looking down and they're, they're totally oblivious to any of the beauty that is around them. One of the things my dad and I used to do and our family has continued the tradition is we will often go and find a spot somewhere and as we would say, we will pull up a log or pull up a rock and have a seat and we will sit there and stare and gaze for hours, literally hours, and just soak in the image that is before us. One of the places we have done this is leaving uh, Yosemite. As you're heading out the road, just before you get to where the 41 and the 120 split, there's a turnoff about a quarter mile before that. And this is the view from that turnout. We have sat there and looked at it. You have El Capitan on your left. You have Cathedral Rocks on your right. In front of the cathedral rocks is Bridal Veil Fall. That all is in the center there is overlooking the beautiful green Bridal Veil Meadows. If you look off in the distance, you will see just peeking over the southern wall of the valley, you will see a half dome just peeking over the top there. And if you're there the right time of the year, as we were on this particular occasion, you will see ribbon falls up to the left of El Capitan, one of the seasonal falls that many people don't even know is there if you don't go the right time of the year. It's a spectacular location. And we will just sit there and etch that image into our minds. I can see it. I can almost hear the water running by, the Merced River at its fullest point right there, the River of Mercy. It's beautiful. What amazes me is, is as we are sitting there soaking this in, there will be car after car after car who will pull into the turnout, they'll glance, they'll see the view, they'll grab their camera, they'll turn, they'll go click, Sometimes they won't even roll down the window. They'll take it through a dirty, tinted window, put their phone or their camera back down, and off they go. And they will not have been there for more than 30 seconds. But folks, they did Yosemite. They have the photo. And I sit there and wonder, but did they see it? Did they stand in awe? Did they really gaze at it and soak it in? 
We at Grace, along with most Christian churches, whatever their preaching series are, we always stop twice a year to retell two stories. We stop at Christmas and Easter every year and retell those stories because those are pivotal stories in God's redemptive plan of man. But in particular, at Christmas, we retell that story many times. We're going to preach on it for five weeks. The kids talked about it last Sunday night. The adults are going to do it tonight. Next Sunday night on Christmas Eve, we're going to retell the story again. We're going to retell it in our families, in our Sunday schools. We will hear that story multiple times every year. And when you get to be my age or so, you can say, you know what? I have heard that story literally hundreds and hundreds of times. And it would be very easy for us to say, been there, done that. I, I know the story. Okay, I got the story. Angel visits Zachariah. Zachariah becomes mute. Elizabeth becomes pregnant. Angel visits Mary. Mary becomes pregnant. Mary visits Elizabeth. Baby jumps. Elizabeth has her baby. Zachariah's tongue is loose. There's a census. Mary and Joseph travel to Bethlehem. No room in the inn. Baby's born, laid in a manger. Shepherds see angels. Wise men see a star. And then they all gather at this very inhistoric, non-historic scene of Mary and Joseph in a stable with some stable animals behind us and baby Jesus is in the manger. And on the one side we have the shepherds and maybe they're holding a sheep or two. And on the other side we have the wise men. There is always three, never more, never less. We need a mode of transportation, so stick a camel in there, put a giant star over the top and take the picture and we can go, we've done Christmas. I have the photo. But did we stop and stare and gaze and be in awe of what God is doing and of what God has done? I think as we go to our text today, we're going to see several opportunities where we will be able to look and gaze at what God is doing and to be in awe of what he has done. We pick up the story today. Luke's narrative returns us back to Zechariah and Elizabeth. He introduced us to them back at the beginning of the chapter, but we have to remember that the events that we preached on three weeks ago happened probably 10 months ago, kind of like the end of February or March if Elizabeth had her baby last Saturday. So it's been a while. And during all that time, she has come full term. She has delivered her baby. And all the while, Zechariah has been mute. He has been unable to speak. Now let's remind ourselves, why is Zechariah mute? He was performing his priestly duty. He was in the, the temple doing his duties when the angel came to him and basically said this, Thus saith the Lord, Elizabeth is going to bear a son, and his name will be John. And that son will be a prophet of the Most High and will prepare the way for the Messiah. And my paraphrased response of what Zechariah said was, Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Do you not understand how old we are? Do you not recognize that, that Elizabeth is beyond childbearing years? We're going to have a son? Yeah, right. And God rebukes him. Let me use another word. God disciplines him. We may not often think of that text as God being disciplined, but the reality is that is what happened. 
Now we must remember there's a difference between discipline and punishment. They both have an event in which the desired outcome is not achieved, is not obtained. Punishment tends to look backwards and so it says, you know, because you didn't respond the right way, you pay. Discipline tends to look forward and go, you didn't respond the right way. I want to train you. I want to teach you. Dare I say, I want to discipline you to respond differently the next time. And God disciplines Zechariah. Now, let's not be too hard on Zechariah. There are times we do two things with biblical characters. We can kind of forget their shortcomings and assume they always responded the correct way in every circumstance, in every situation, and we can tend to elevate them and put them up on a pedestal. Or we can do the opposite and we can mock them. I'd never do that. There's no way I would have ever said that. That was a foolish thing to do. Why would you do that? You know, an angel appeared to me. Yes, sir, whatever you say, sir, right away, sir. That's how I would have responded, right? We mock them. But the reality is that we should see in, Zach in Zechariah as well as many biblical characters, should be like a mirror. We should see ourselves in them in some way, shape, or form. See, Zechariah had a point, he had a line that he had drawn to where God could work. And what the angel was telling him was beyond that line. It was out of bounds. That's, you can't work in that realm. But that's no different than other biblical characters. Sarah, when she was given the news that she was going to bear a child, she laughed. That's laughable. Martha, when Lazarus dies, what does she say? She said, Lord, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. There's a line. You could have done something, Lord, before this point, but after this point, it's too late. You, you, you can't do anything now. How about Jairus? He comes to Jesus and with his daughter being sick and asks Jesus to come to his home. He has great faith that Jesus can heal. And Jesus starts to the home, and then there's this whole incident with a woman who's bleeding, who touched him, and who touched me, and there's this lengthy conversation. And I can imagine Jairus saying, come on, Jesus, come on, Jesus, let's go. And the text says, while Jesus was still talking to the woman, the household of Jairus came to him and said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the master now. Why? You've crossed the line. He can't do anything now. And, and that is no different than you and I. If I were to push all of you, we have a line. We have a spot to where we say, God, you can work up until here, but after that, it's a little bit out of bounds. I don't think you can do anything there. That's impossible. Maybe it's in a relationship. You have an irreparable relationship, maybe in your family, between parents and children, between siblings, between husband and wife, where you say, this relationship, this, this relationship has gotten so bad, it is so damaged, there is no way it can be repaired. And we look when God says, I can take your heart of stone and I can turn it into a heart of flesh. And we go, no, God, this is across the line. You can't do that here. How about, how about in a besetting sin that we have where we say, there is this sin, there is this thing that is so addictive to me, so attractive to me, so alluring to me, I cannot not do it. 
It compels me. It pulls me. Do we believe that God can really take that area of our life and make that something that we would look at someday and actually be repulsed by it? That he could transform us by the renewing of our mind to the point where that not only is not a draw to me, that would be repulsive to me to even think about that. Or again, is that out of bounds? Can God not do that? How about areas in our life where God has created things for our beauty and for our enjoyment and they're supposed to be good and pleasurable and because of abuse or a trauma, they have now been turned into something that is painful and terrifying. Is that out of bounds? Or when God says, I can make all things new. I can redeem what the locusts have eaten. See, we all draw lines at some point. We have places in our life where we don't believe God can operate, where we say, no, this is impossible for you. And we should see ourselves in Zechariah. And so Zechariah is, is rebuked. He is disciplined by God. Now Luke tells us that Zechariah is mute. The word that is used there is sometimes translated as mute and deaf. And in the text that we read today, you will actually see that there is indication that Zechariah is also deaf because when they came to him at the circumcision ceremony and they asked the name, what does it say? The text says they signed to him. Why would you do that if he's not deaf? And it would make sense to me that God in his discipline, that's what he would do because what was the problem? Zechariah did not believe the word of God. And so I can see Zechariah being told by God and God saying to him, look, Zechariah, you will not speak a word and you may not hear a word until you see that my word is true. Till you see, Zechariah, I am going to show you that my word is trustworthy. Now in that state, Zechariah would have had a lot of time to contemplate, to meditate, to study the scriptures. And we now get to the scene where the baby has been born. It's the bris, it's the eight days after a male child is born when they bring him for the circumcision ceremony. And notice that there's a little bit of buzz. You've got family, relatives, neighbors who are all there. And they're inquiring as to what the child's name is gonna be. Tradition says that you would name the boy after a father or a grandfather or somebody in your lineage. And they're asking for the child's name, and Elizabeth says, John? They don't like that answer, so they inquire of Zechariah, and Zechariah writes out, his name is John, and immediately his tongue is loosed. And we get the first opportunity to see what the discipline, how it worked in Zechariah's life. Because how does Zechariah respond? What is his first words? Is he cursing at God? Is he telling God how difficult this has been, yelling at him, saying, God, I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. Do you know how hard this has been the last 10 months? No. What does Zechariah do? He blesses God. It's our first sign that God's discipline in him worked. He blesses God. He praises God. Now, what about the people? They've been witnessing this. They've seen this event unfold, and they've seen four significant pieces. They saw Zechariah suddenly become mute when he was in the temple. 
They saw Elizabeth, beyond childbearing years, have a child and, and to bear a child. They now see that the child is being named a different name. They will find out the child is being named by God. And then ultimately, they see Zachariah's tongue being opened as quickly as it was closed. And they connect the four dots and they put it together. God is here. God is working. God is doing something here. We need to pay attention here. We need to lay this up in our hearts. We need to watch, what's this child going to be? God is doing something significant here. But notice what their response was. The text says they were filled with fear. When God shows up, they're filled with fear. And they notice this, and they pay attention to this. And then Luke gives us the Benedictus. It is Zachariah's hymn. And I would like to look at this hymn, and there's five things I'd like to notice in it. I would like to notice, what is it that God does? Why does God do it? What is his motivation? What does Zechariah learn? And how does Zechariah respond? Five things. First of all, what does God do? Verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited. He has visited. we got to understand, we don't have a God who has just taken this universe and wound it up like a child's toy and then thrown it out there to do its thing and then sits back and folds his arms and just kind of watches it and says, let's see what happens. This universe was created with purpose, with intention, with planning, with goals, with objectives. And that means that he is, if he needs to be involved in the universe, he will be involved and he shows up and he visits us. Zechariah has seen this in the Old Testament. He's seen the times when Christ has shown up. He has seen the prophets be communicated to by God. He has seen the angels show up. God visits us. Now, I don't know if that's a big word to you. That's a big word to me. There are two areas, uh, two areas, communities that our family has been involved in. The first is senior care. My dad, my, my wife's parents, both of us have been involved in that for over 40 years. And the other community we've been involved with that I've shared with you before is foster care. And in both of these communities, I've heard the same statement. The seniors say it of their adult children and adult grandchildren. The foster families and foster kids say it of the biological parents. And the statement is simply this. They don't visit. They don't visit. Now, what you have to know is that statement comes with a sub-statement. And for some people, it's way back. It barely phases them. For other people, it's right here in their face. You don't visit because you don't care. That's what it's about. See, but we have a God who visits us. He cares. He's involved. He interacts with us. He's not standing off from us. He's very hands-on. We have a God who visits, but that's not just it. Go to verse 78. Look in the middle of verse 78. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, 
to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet in the path of peace or in the way of peace. Zechariah is referencing Numbers and Isaiah and the Psalms. He's saying not only has he visited in the past, but the light of the world, he is coming. He is going to visit us again. I've been pondering that a lot this year. That's been one that's just been on my mind. Emmanuel, God with us. Take a look at the picture that's on the screen or on the front of your same picture on the front of your worship folder. If I were to ask you, what do you see? What does that picture represent to you? I think most of us would say, well, it's, it's the hand of Mary and the hand of baby Jesus holding her finger. Maybe we would expound upon it a little bit. It's the Son of God holding her finger. And in one sense, that's true. And I understand that. But there's another sense that I look at and go, I don't comprehend it. I don't get it. Let me illustrate it to you this way. Some of you are sitting out there right now, and you're using your electronic Bibles. Okay? When I'm sitting out there, I use electronic. I don't trust them up here. And you're using your electronic Bible, and I say to you, how does it work? Oh, I've got this app, and uh, it's got multiple translations of the Bible, and it's got dictionaries, and it's got concordances, and it's all hyperlinked, and I can click on a button, and it'll take me over to this cross-reference and do all this, and I can take notes on it, and the notes synchronize up to the cloud so that when I go home, it's on my other, my desktop, and on my other computers. It's fantastic. And in a sense, you answered my question. But I asked you, how does it work? How does that get reduced down to positive and negative charges of electricity? How does it put an image on that glass? How does it know and pick up the heat off of your finger? How does it know when you touch the glass what you're touching, what's under it, and what is a hyperlink, and what is the cloud, and how does it do that communication? And I think if I pushed you to that level, most of you would respond to me like, I have no clue. I have no clue how this thing works. Read Colossians 1, 15 to 20. It's the supremacy of Christ. And notice two things when you read that passage. Notice the pronouns, he and him. And then notice the absolutes, all, everything, anything. He is before all things. He creates all things. He sustains all things. He reconciles all things. He has preeminence over all things. It is the supremacy of Christ. Paul goes on in chapter 2 and says, in him is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Is that what you see? Is that what you see in that little hand grabbing the finger? Do you see the Christ, the creator of the universe that has emptied himself and took the form of a servant and came in the likeness of men? There's a sense in which we can stare at that image and it should blow our minds. Is that something that we could gaze at this year and be in awe of? The creator of the universe came and he visited us. He visits us. Well, why does he visit? Continue reading. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people 
and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. Why did he visit? He visits us to redeem us. Now initially, Zechariah is talking about Israel. He has seen in the past how over and over again, Israel has gone into captivity and God has freed them. They've gone into bondage and God has freed them. They've gone into slavery and God has freed them. And once again, if you remember from three weeks ago, Israel is currently under the reign of this guy Herod, a wicked and evil man. It was said you had a better life expectancy as Herod's dog than you did as his son. He was an evil man. And Zechariah's going, oh, you are coming to free us from this reign and this rule. But notice why Zechariah wants to be freed. Notice what he is anticipating. Verse 74, that we, being delivered from our hands, from the hands of our enemies, might serve him in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Zechariah is not saying, I want to be free because I want to be fat and sassy and comfortable. He's saying, I want to be free because I want to be able to serve you without fear in holiness and in righteousness every day of my life. But there's another place that we are coming to be freed. See, our only enemy is not out there. We have an enemy in here. And we need to be freed from that enemy as well. And in verse 77, what is it that we see? That it is the knowledge of salvation to his people for the forgiveness of their sins. That's the enemy that we have in here that we need to be rescued from. We need to be redeemed from. John the Baptist, growing up for however many years he was in the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth, but he got the message when he was out baptizing and carrying, uh, doing his ministry, and he sees Jesus in the distance walking up, what does he say? Behold the man who's going to rescue us and redeem us from Rome? No. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He has visited us. He has visited us for the purpose of bringing us salvation. What is his motivation? His motivation is clear in this text. He repeats it multiple times. It's his great mercy and grace. Look at this. Why does he bring salvation from our enemies? Verse 72, to show mercy, the mercy promised to our fathers. Why does he bring salvation and forgiveness of our sins? Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. And why was it that Elizabeth even conceived in the first place? Back in, first, in verse 58, we read, it was because the Lord had shown her great mercy. Why does God do this? His compelling factor is his mercy. And then he has this child that she bears. He says, you're going to name him John. What does John mean? The Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. It is his mercy, his grace, his compassion, his love that motivates him to visit us and bring us salvation. Have you stood and pondered God's mercies in your life? Have you ever thought about 
all the ways that God has actually withheld from you what you deserve in terms of justice. Have you thought how many times God has protected you? He has sheltered you. Or how many times he has forgiven you over and over and over again. There's a song, Count Your Blessings, name them one by one. Can you count your mercies that God has given you? Have you stood in awe of God's mercy in your life? So he visits us. He visits us to redeem us, to bring us salvation because of his great mercy and grace. So what did Zechariah learn in all of this? Well, there's two things first we must remember. First of all, faith is learned. When you become a follower of Christ, it's not just something that's, boom, you have faith, and it's all of a sudden intuitive and natural and and everything works right. That's not how it works. Faith is something that is learned. When Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 4, he's thanking them for their gifts. And he says, you know, I'm not thanking you because I'm, I'm, I'm grateful because of need. I'm not speaking in regard to need. Why? Because I have learned. I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. He goes on and says, I have learned to be full and to be hungry, to abound and to suffer need. What does that mean? That means at one point in time, Paul didn't know how to be content. He didn't know how to handle abundance and lack. But that through his life, these have been things that God has taught him. And now, even as he responds to the Philippians, he goes, I I know how to do it. I'm thankful for your gift. I don't speak in regard to need because I have learned. Zechariah will learn. But here's the other thing we need to remember about faith. You're never too old to learn. You're never too old to learn. Zechariah was a priest. If anybody should know, shouldn't it be the priest? He spent his life serving God. And yet he still had a place in his life where he had drawn a line and said, no, God, that's impossible. You can't work in that area. And even at his elderly age, he still can learn. If you're alive, be a learner. Be teachable. So what does Zachariah learn? His offense was he didn't believe the word of the Lord. He didn't believe him. So you look at his hymn here and look at all the words and phrases that he uses that deals with the word of the Lord and see what he has learned. He opens his whole, uh, his whole hymn with the redeeming, the salvation, the Messiah coming through the line of David. And what does he say in verse 70? This is all as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets of old. This is not new news, folks. This is what he said he was going to do, and he has done it. He has fulfilled it. Verse 72 and 73, he's going to show, to show the mercy promised. He promised us this. I have seen that he is fulfilling and he is standing by his promise. And it's a promise to our forefathers and to remember his holy covenant. Remembering. Now, remembering is not just a cognitive, oh, yeah, I remembered. 
That's not my wife calling me up and saying, will you get groceries on the way home? And I say, yes. And I drive by the store and I go, oh yeah, I need to remember to go to the store. And I get home and she goes, did you remember to go to the store? And I said, yes. She goes, where are the groceries? I didn't get them because I didn't go. But I remembered. It's not that kind of memory, folks. This is a memory that is, it brings it to effect. It actualizes it. It makes it happen. And he says, what does he remember? His holy covenants. His covenant with Abraham, I will give you many descendants. His covenant with David, through your lineage, through your line, will come the Messiah. And his oath. Hebrews says, when he made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And it goes on to say that men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. God has made his promises. He has made his covenant. He has taken an oath, and Zechariah says, I have seen this in the past. I have seen it, and I have learned, no matter how long of a time has gone by, I can trust the word of the Lord that when he says he will do something, he will do it. And so, Zechariah is given an opportunity to respond. This is a place where, again, we can see the mercy of God. If you remember when he was in the temple, he was told two things by the angel. He was told, one, Elizabeth will have a son, and his name will be John. Check. Done that. Number two, he will be a prophet of the Most High and will prepare the way for the Messiah. Now, if you go back and look at Zechariah's complaints and his arguments at the beginning there, his argument was about point number one, because point number two is insignificant without number one. I'm too old. Elizabeth's too old. This can't happen. But now, look at what God did. God disciplines him. He taught him. But his discipline did not last for the duration of the promises. His discipline only lasted for part one. And it's as if God's saying, okay, Zechariah, part one's done. Guess what? Part two is on the table now. It's up for discussion. How do you want to respond to this one? I hear what I hear my daughter saying to the grandkids a lot when you don't get the response you like. Try again. Try again. And do you see the mercy of God that he turns to Zechariah and he goes, okay, Zechariah, here's another one. Try again. Try again. And what do we see? Do we see Zechariah come back and say, uh, yeah, right. He's going to be a prophet. We're priests. We're not prophets. No, that's not going to happen, God. No, that's not what we see because Zechariah has learned to trust the word of the Lord. And so how does he respond? Look at this. Verse 76 and you, child, will be. You will be. Not you might be. Not I hope you could be. Not my mother and my, your mother and I would really like it if you would be. No. You will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord and prepare his ways. 
Zechariah has gone from yeah, right, to you will be. See, we got to understand that as a priest, what he did is he would stand before God. Hebrews says that a priest is selected from among and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God. So the people are behind him, and he stands before God, and he represents the people to God. But he has learned now, and in this particular instance, the priest became a prophet. And he turns around and he stands before God and he faces the people and he represents God back to the people and he says, thus saith the Lord. And he repeats to them what he was told, what he says, this will happen. And we know because we're past it all that it's a good 30 years before this will happen. Zachariah and Elizabeth may not have even lived to see that occasion happen. But he had learned to trust the word of the Lord and to know this will happen. What about the people? The crowd was there. They've seen all this. Remember it said they stored this. They laid this up in their hearts. Part of Zechariah going through this process is the people watching him go through this process. That's part of why we need to be in community. There are times when we walk through valleys and we walk through hard times and we may not want to be here, but that's exactly when you need to be here because us seeing you walk through a difficult situation, questioning, not understanding, not getting it, but hanging on to God, it builds our faith. There was several years back when we had an incident happen in our family that was one of those roads I didn't know I was ever going to travel. And it was like a, it was a tough one. It was hard. I called up two, two couples to help us. And one of the couples I called specifically because I had known years before they had walked this exact road. And I said, talk to me, help me. And we spent significant time in conversation. And my last question to him at the end of the call was simply this. Tell me, can God redeem this? Can God really use this for his glory and for his purposes? I need to know that. And the reason why he could answer me is he said yes. And why? Because I have seen it in my family. Paul says in Romans 1, he says, I long to be with you so that I may impart to you a spiritual gift to make you strong. What is that spiritual gift, Paul? That you and I may be mutually encouraged. How? By each other's faith. By each other's faith. I called that friend up three, three, about three months ago. said, I want to update you on what's going on. And I got to sit and tell him, let me share with you, after all these years, let me share with you how I've seen God redeem that situation. Let me share with you how he turned it for good. Let me share with you how he used it. And my faith was built, and his faith was built. And we all come to this place where we can finally, we build each other up in our faith, and we get to a point where we can say, yes, I know I don't get it all the way, but everything is possible with God. And those areas in my life that I come and I think, there's no way, it's out of bounds, it's over the line. No, it's possible 
with God. We learn from Zechariah. We learn from one another. And our faith is built up. God, you know what situation we're in. And each person here this morning, as we come to this place, you know what our burdens are. You know what our cares are. You know where we trust you and where we just don't think you can work. And I pray, Father, that we would see from Zechariah, we would see from people in our midst that yes, all things are possible. That when you speak and you say you desire to transform us and make us into your likeness, that you want to turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, that yes, you can indeed do that and are doing that. So we submit ourselves to you, Father, and ask you to work in our lives to transform us into your likeness. And would we know that you can do what we think is impossible in our lives. In your name we pray, amen.